I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kind of philosophy is something that I've just carried through for everything I do now in all my life and in anything, you know, reducing things down to the most minuscule, minute moments of joy and happiness because they surround us each and every day, but... Because they are so plentiful, we just become numb to them. We don't see them. And that's why negative impacts kind of really hurt us because they're rare. They're the rare moments. But if you're able to recognise the small joys, the little things, to kind of be in the moment when they're happening, suddenly negative impacts don't hit you so hard. Thanks for joining me. Henry Fraser was on his first trip abroad with his mates in Portugal when disaster struck. An act so many of us have looked forward to and enjoyed. An act so innocuous his mates had no idea what had happened. Henry dived into the ocean as a 17-year-old lad with the world ahead of him. He left as a tetraplegic. His story is going to inspire, humble and no doubt leave you with a smile on your face. But before we get into the episode, Athletic Greens are supporting the show again this week. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I didn't have time and wanted to get better gut health, more energy and a strong immune system. I take it as soon as I wake up so my body has the best chance to absorb the 75 high quality vitamins, minerals and probiotics. Most people take some kind of multivitamin so it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews, so you know it's good. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And I'll put the link in the synopsis to this episode as well. Hope you enjoy the episode. Henry Fraser, thank you very much for inviting me into your home. Pleasure. Let's go back. Let's go back to that that trip that you almost didn't even make it on the flight to Portugal, did you? Yeah, I mean, I got all the way. Amazingly, got all the way to the boarding gate after all the security checks and everything to find out my passport was three months expired. Having it been checked two, three, four times before that, everything going very smoothly, and suddenly got to the gate and just just complete like hammer blow from. The woman working at the desk and you know i was like no that can't be right I kind of checked it and i was only there was eight of us going on the trip and there was only one of the guys behind me so everyone else in the lounge and suddenly they're like looking over because it's taking ages and they come over and it's, everyone's a bit like oh geez and then i had to do this kind of walk of shame back through the airport as everyone's walking to the gate i'm walking back the other way like a complete like just crazy man it's kind of head down, like I was wearing a cap, kind of pulled that down, trying just not to make eye contact with anyone. It was really weird. And then trying to like locate my luggage and stuff. And it's just, then I had to get like the train back home. Obviously I called mum and dad on the way back. And, you know, we spent ages trying to work out how to like get me out there and book a new flight for the next day. The only place I get an next day passport, pretty much in the, the closest place in the country I get next day passport is Liverpool. So dad drove me up that morning. We left at like 4 a.m., Three, four. We had to then get the passport done, then kill four hours in Liverpool. After it was done, a dad dropped me off at the airport. Obviously, he had to get back because, you know, he had, he had work to do. <laughs> so then I had to kill like three more hours in Liverpool Airport, just sitting there, not really doing much. And then eventually, flat out to be my mates and this whole, some people leaving signs or whatever. And I guess maybe that was one. But, you know, at that point, we were just thinking about my parents very very kindly, very generously, we're thinking about getting me out there and wanting me to be there with my friends. It was the first time I was going abroad with just mates. I know it's kind of, you know, one of those big moments, big deals. And you know, when you're in your late, mid, late teens, it's kind of want to be doing those things. Yeah, you'd been going, probably going to the gym for, for, for months, gearing <laughs> up to it. You'd manscaped before <laughs> you, the day before you got on the plane. I was in tip-top shape, I cannot tell you. <laughs> I was stronger than I've ever been. 
I was fast than I've ever been. I was I was on fire. And, you were no. beach ready. <laughs> you made it out there the next day, didn't you? Yeah, so I joined the the guys. Um, we were in Prayer Deluge, and the the Villa Redrenta is kind of up halfway up this hill, and there's a bar down on the beach, and I met them there, kind of luggage in hand, and I can't remember what time it was. It was I don't know, maybe like seven, eight o'clock in the evening over there. And I've been up since three already, so I was feeling pretty tired. And then they're obviously having a few drinks, getting ready to go out. And yeah, I just joined them on that night out and I, yeah, didn't get back to early hours. And I was just, I was just wiped. I was so tired. But it's just nice to be there and know I was there and finally be there. Shock I got the worst bed because I was the last one there, but I guess it was warranted because of everything. And then what, what do you remember of the, the day that the accident happened? So it's just like every other day we had there. It was kind of get up late. Everyone's everyone's a bit jaded from the night before. Kind of putting together some form of breakfast and God knows what was in the cupboards and fridge and the villa we had that, you know, just bits we all had left over. Um, and then, yeah, got up. We just all went down to the beach again, like we had on the previous days. You know, probably a different part, slightly different part of the beach. Chucking rug ball around, just, you know, having fun. So I had to go cool off in the sea because it was you know middle of summer in portugal and the south is is boiling hot and the sea was i mean the sea is incredibly cold but you know i thought it needs to go cool down so i ran in kind of followed a couple of mates in went next to them and i dived in and yeah next thing i know is you know i, I dived in expecting to kind of open my eyes get up walk out of the water go join my mates back on the beach start planning the next night out start thinking about where, where we're going to eat and you know the usual bits but open my eyes just there in the water, just completely unable to move a thing, just staring through kind of crystal clear water. The seabed, I don't know, a few feet below me, my arms just there hanging in front of me. And that was when, you know, the panic just completely set in and I was just shouting, swearing into the water, you know, just fearing, well, fearing for my life in that moment. Obviously, the thought went through my head of thinking, you know, crap, this this is it, this could be it. Luckily, I kind of saw out the corner of my eye, you know, a pair of legs kind of walk, kind of coming near me, and I turned my head kind of ever so slightly to one side. Friend, it's one of my mates, he asked if I was okay, and I kind of managed to get the word no out just about, and two of them and quickly dragged me from the water on the, onto the beach. And then that was when all the, the kind of everything, everything changed, and, you know, it was a time in hospital and all that to follow. Did you think you were dead? I didn't think I was dead. I thought that I was, I thought I was, the thought went through my head that I was going to die there. Yeah. Um, which in that moment, yeah, it was pretty, pretty scary. But yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was just everything goes through your head at that point. Um, you know, the old saying of, you know, life flashes before your eyes type thing. It really does. But I just found out that's because your kind of mind goes into a panic situation where it tries to find out situations in your past to help you in situation you're in now which i thought was quite a cool thing what do you mean so when you go into i can't, I can't remember where i read it i don't know if it's true but it kind of made sense because people say life flash so basically it's your when you're in a situation where you don't know like things are really extreme or whatever or if you're kind of i guess near near death your mind kind of goes back through are there any similar situations that you've been in to help get you out of that situation, basically? So it's trying to like file through everything. Your brain is just like, mm. that, that shit just blows my mind. How it works out, I'm just going to, like a computer, I'm just going to file through. Is yeah. there anything in there that can help me out? Which I didn't know at the time. It was just something that was happening. Um, but again, it was a moment that probably only lasted I mean, seconds, but mm. in that moment it really did feel like forever. It was just a lot happening um and yeah then when i got onto the beach it was um ambulance was called and then i was taken to hospital airlifted to hospital lisbon so i was just kind of removed from everyone uh and then yeah i spent three weeks in portugal in hospital with some pretty mad health stuff kicking off as well when you got off when you got onto the beach didn't you apologize to your mates yeah First thing I did, well, because they were kind of all standing around me. And yeah, because I 
well, because I felt I'd ruined their holiday. <laughs> um, you know, at that point, didn't know, obviously, the extent of what had happened or anything had happened. But, you know, it caused this big commotion. This kind of, the, everyone on the beach, obviously, was like looking over. They were the ones kind of being there trying to work out what to do. That You know, this is the lad's holiday. You know, these guys are young 17-year-old men who don't want to be doing these things. They want to be thinking about going out and having a few drinks and not looking after their mate who's, you know, probably buggered the holiday a bit. Bit of a dampener on things, eh? Yeah, I'm always the one, eh? <laughs> <laughs> There's always one that goes too far. <laughs> so just, so when you jumped into the water, I don't expect you to remember this, so I'm trying to work it out. So it's quite a common occurrence in the Algarve from what I read in your book, from people doing what you what happened to you. But it's, so you, you, do you know like what it was that you actually did so you jumped into the water your head has hit the sand or hit yeah. rock or well i think because on some of those beaches the seabed really tails off quite fast to good depth and then can kick up a bit and i think that's just what happened and no no one's really quite sure as to when the actual damage happened because the damage was i dislocated my fourth vertebrae it pretty much just slid out completely out of place um and one senior nurse when i came back to england just talking to her one night and she was thought maybe as i've hit the seabed my neck's compressed so there's like a really high amount of pressure there and as i kind of turned turned my head to see my mates i saw them that released the pressure and the vertebrae just kind of popped popped out of place which dragged the obviously the spinal cord running through the, the spinal column dragged that and severely crushed all the all the nerves in the column which i think kind of Sounds like the most plausible theory. When you're in hospital and you've woken up, like what's running through your mind? Well, the first thing I wanted was my parents to be there. Um, I remember when I first got to the hospital, I asked one of the staff to contact my parents and I gave them uh, mum and dad's home number. And it turns out that they didn't contact my parents at all. It was actually the dad of one of the boys who had um, called my parents to say something's happened, Henry's in been taken to Lisbon we didn't they didn't no one knew which hospital I was in so my dad were calling around like every hospital in Lisbon trying to trying to find out where I was um and then yeah so I was again I didn't really know what was happening but it was a lot of a lot of commotion going around on around me when I arrived at hospital and they quickly rushed me to x-ray and then the commotion got a bit you know a bit bigger and suddenly thinking okay this is probably something a bit more serious and then the doctor quickly put this numbing cream on the sides of my head. Um, and then for literally like two seconds later, the cream hadn't taken effect. I had to grab this kind of metal halo thing with two big bolts on either side that he had to put on on my head. And then just like screwed it into either side of my head. What, through the skin? Or just onto it? Yeah, no, through the skin. I've got two, I don't even see it on the side oh, of my head, like a little scar. Yeah. Yeah, both sides. Oh. Yeah. Like actually into the, into the skull. You're awake. Yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty mad. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and then because of it, because the plan was I put that on my on my head and then there's like a pulley system on the back of the bed. The idea is to hang weights off the pulley system to try and stretch out my neck to let the vertebrae naturally slide back into place. Which found out later on is kind of a practice that wasn't probably wasn't the best thing to do at the time. But again, you know, hindsight and all that. And then, yeah, the following day, mum and dad managed to find me and flew out to be there. Packed for what they thought would be three days. Turned out to be three weeks later, still there. When you were saying before how the doctors tried to realign your vertebrae, was there was there still hope at that point? Like, were you aware that, shit, I'm, I'm completely paralysed here, but, but maybe they can fix me? There was a point when the senior nurse that came out to me and he just told me you'll never be able to move your arms and legs again just as blunt as that and you know at the time I was kind of shocked I'd I'd also just had my second surgery at that point where they went through the back of my neck and the front to get the vertebrae back into place finally and screw and bolt in everything to make sure it stayed there and I started still on some pretty heavy medication still health wise was uh, really really off so my mind kind of wasn't fully there but i could still i was kind of pretty angry at the guy for just saying that to me but looking back it 
kind of being straight with people in those moments is the right thing to do because I've never had any no one's ever given me any false hope along any of this which is good I've never really kind of lived in that kind of false world of thinking oh maybe I'll be able to do that or do that it's like this situation this is how it is you've got to deal with it whether it's now or later you know I'll have to deal with it at some point so him telling me that was you know a real hammer blow especially as you know at the time as a fit and healthy 17 year old boy and you know doing a lot of sports you know all these things and suddenly have that whipped away from me in a single sentence was was yeah a lot to take you mentioned your brothers like how important were they because you've got three brothers haven't you yeah how important were they especially in those early stages i know your parents we know what i mean if everyone can picture in their head the perfect parents that were looking after you and doing everything that you'd imagine parents to be that was your parents well i wouldn't go yes not They'll listen to this and I can't give them that much credit. Jeez. Did I go too far with yeah, that? Yeah, come on. That's a... <laughs> they could have done more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> How important were your brothers and what role did they play, especially in those early stages? In general, family were mum, dad, brothers, cousin, everyone, aunties, uncles were incredible. But my brothers, so I came back to England, I was taken to St. Mandel Hospital and I was in intensive care like the heart of the hospital with no room kind of no windows nothing my own room because i had mrsa so obviously i had to be kind of isolated from all other patients and my brothers came in the following day the following morning after i came back and yeah it was i mean they came in and at you know one of the worst kind of physical states i was in 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 the whole thing i had machines for kind of breathing i had multiple bags of antibiotics around me i'd fluids i'd everything i'd chew in my nose i couldn't eat or drink anything at the time either i'd you know every conceivable possible thing going into my body at that time um but you know when they came in those things didn't bother me and it didn't bother them when i was face down in the water i could have easily not have been there at all and here i was suddenly with my brothers again and it was a wildly emotional moment um when they came in we all just broke we all just were crying loads and you know as brothers as you know young boys young men we'd never done that together before we never had had a moment like that and I think that was vitally important for us to release that and know you know this is a crappy situation to be in we don't want no none of us wants to be there none of us want to be feeling or experience that but for us to know that and release that together in that moment was huge because it allowed us to none of us were holding back our emotions at all and it's the same actually when my friends came and other family members i can't tell you how much i cried in those first few weeks it was unbelievable um but i think it was just part of kind of the early healing stage just letting knowing that because it meant that we could then you know park that and then think about moving on and doing whatever and then just being there as brothers together more than anything else just being the same knobs we were to each other before just in hospital room instead were there knobs to you at any point oh countless times they just used me they call me their golden ticket still so it's ridiculous i know but uh um i mean there are other times they've kind of played pranks on me back at home there's one time actually when i first came back i'd my bed was downstairs because my room we hadn't put the lift in yet for me to be able to access my bedroom so my bed was downstairs and was in front of the tv and they kind of put on you know one of the 900 channels in sky which i'm sure lots of young men know what i'm talking about and then put the remote in my hand and my other hand like in my trousers and then just walked out and left me <laughs> but then obviously for mum to walk in and i'm just there which is i just promised it wasn't me <laughs> Oh, Henry. Yeah. What are brothers for, eh? <laughs> Man, that is magic. That is magic. What about, um, what are, you talk in your book about the kindness of strangers as well. How important was that and what was your experience with that and what impact did that have? Yeah, I mean, the one of the main things was the number of just cards and letters I got from people that I didn't even met younger pupils at the schools I'd been to or teachers or even their kind of friends or family members or whatever. I wasn't even able to open all the cards I received. I had so 
so so many it was quite it was quite something and massively overwhelming but each one was just yeah and again i cried at so many especially the longer ones that you know, i remember one from my cousin that she wrote that just kind of really finished me off that day but it's just like knowing that that support's there from people i would never met that knowing you know there's these people out there who are this kind and this generous to to give you know what is a small amount of their time to someone that they've never met that they don't know there's one thing i always say in my talks actually when i go out and come share my stories that i always encourage people to reach out to others to whether you know them or not or no matter how small you think your gesture might gesture might be is to do it because it makes such a difference it makes a wild difference and the other one was you know my mum's half greek cypriot she's a feeder so having four boys was a absolute flipping dream for her she's trying to fatten us up all the time so i know you know all her friends and everyone knew that and mum especially in the early days was with me in hospital kind of morning till night and her friends and you know some friends i'd even met before were just leaving food parcels on the front doorstep at home and kind of wouldn't expect a thank you wouldn't expect kind of recognition for what they'd done they were just doing that because they knew that mum was with me and you know she had boys that needed feeding a husband that needed feeding and they could go and it was just there the boys would kind of get home and say oh mum there's another food parcel here do you know where it's from and some a lot of the time we kind of didn't know or, or we knew after a while because we recognized the dish that it was from or you know it was and you know things like that because it meant the mum could be there for me I could have that kind of constant support by my side and it also meant a lot to my brothers and family that they knew that they had that support and my mum as well she had that support from her friends and everyone and you know it just impacts every everyone it's kind of the feelings just get shared and amplified so much more when you look at your at, at this point that you're going through this time in the early stages and you're a young lad you don't want to be in that position your outlook would have been pretty bleak as far as your mental outlook at what point did it switch what was was there a moment that it switched because your outlook on life is in, incredibly unique um i guess kind of the main kickstarter for all of it was the day I was put into a wheelchair for the first time. And by that point, I'd been in bed for at least two months. And I always had this kind of constant seed of denial in the back of my head. There's always lurking there. I've been like, everything's, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to get out of here. And you know, I'm going to walk out of this hospital, get back to doing everything I was doing before. Even though I'd been told by that nurse, you know, I'd never be able to move my arms and legs again. And then so- suddenly I was in that chair taken around the hospital I was able to see all the parts of the hospital that um, my friends and family were spoken about like the cafe or the little outside seating area you know all these things that I'd heard about but not seen I was like oh it's great I can finally you know look around it's awesome and it was late summer so we went outside for a bit I could like feel the sun on my face again this is great and then went around the whole hospital we're about to come back in through the main entrance these two big glass doors it was the first time in two months I'd seen my reflection. And, you know, in that moment, everything around me just stopped, just completely froze because I literally didn't recognize who I was looking at. I'd lost four stone, which is, I don't know, like 25 kilos of weight. Jeez. At that point, I was just thin, so thin. And, you know, my clothes just hanging off me. I still had the tracheotomy in my throat. So I still couldn't breathe independently at that point. It's connected to an oxygen tank in my chair. I was in this big bulky chair with armrests and headrests. I couldn't spot my own head at that point either. And yeah, the moment I got back to my room, I was asked mum to pull the curtain around my bed and I just broke, completely broke. And I was just, it was the first time that I'd you know, gone, why me? That was, and I was just, just crying over and over, just saying, why me, why me? And my mum came in and hugged me and all I wanted to do was be able to hug my mum at that point. I couldn't even do that which of course then just made it so much worse for me. And that day, my brothers came and saw me in the, in the afternoon. And I was just crying when they saw me. My dad, at that point, was always the last one to leave in the evening. And I was just crying until the moment he left, even after he left. And I was just, you know, in, as bad as I've ever felt in that moment. 
And I'd be surprised if I ever felt that bad in my life again. And then that night, I was just, I was on some pretty heavy sleeping medication at that point, like really heavy stuff. But not even that could set me off to sleep that night. And I just remember crying to, I don't know, it must have been early hours of the morning. Just couldn't stop. And I was just staring at the ceiling and it kind of all, I guess I just cried out at that point. Probably lost all the, all the water in my body at that point and probably just dehydrated. <laughs> um, and I was just staring at the ceiling and it's just kind of thought to myself, I can't change what's happened. Like there's no point in me being sad or angry. I want no one to blame for what's happened for this. That I may as well just get on with it. And, you know, I guess I, I guess I was able to think clearer because I just let everything go. In that moment, of, you know, looking back, I realised I'd been holding in more than I'd realised at that point. More than I thought I was. More, A lot more emotion that had kind of still to release. And that moment let me do it. That day gave me what... That day gave me what I needed to push on. Allowed me to release all those feelings, all those emotions. So I could then sit back and think, okay, right. I could think, start thinking clearly about what to do and how I'm going to look at things and, you know, speak to the doctors and ask them, you know, when, how do I get out of the hospital? And they're like, okay, well, it's be 18 months until I leave, which at the time is obviously a pretty long time. And, okay, so I said to them, okay, what do I need to, need to do to be able to leave and they said okay we need to be in the rehab ward what i need to be in the rehab ward well ideally you need to be breathing independently so then i said okay next day um session with my physio booked in to chest physio to help me with my breathing and my lungs and and all that stuff because they were still weren't functioning properly so i said to him what's the process to get to get rid of my tracheotomy and you know what was an 18 month target for me was reduced in that day to five minutes to be able to breathe independently would do all my exercises all the chest exercises disconnect any oxygen tank or ventilator close off the tracheotomy and breathe independently for five minutes and that was it and next day was 10 minutes following day 15 then 20 half an hour 40 then 45 minutes and an hour and then you just keep building from there and that was all my focus was on on those days my focus wasn't on anything else wasn't about worrying about the future wasn't about looking at about eventually I wasn't even thinking about getting home those thoughts weren't even in my head it was about the next day and that small goal that I knew I'd hit that I knew I could do but it's about celebrating those kind of little moments about enjoying them as much as I can and telling them to my friends and family when they arrived so that you know they could see the progress they could hear it they could enjoy it they could feel happy about it that would make me feel better and you know all these things and it was about you know sharing that enjoyment exciting it what is the most, what is, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes is blink of an eye in a day is nothing. But those are huge moments for me. And that's kind of philosophy is something that I've just carried through for everything I do now in all my life and in anything, you know, reducing things down to the most minuscule, minute moments of joy and happiness because they surround us each and every day. But because they are so plentiful, we just become numb to them. We don't see them. And that's why negative impacts kind of really hurt us because they're rare they're the rare moments and but if you're able to recognize the small joys the little things to kind of be in the moment when they're happening suddenly negative impacts don't hit you so hard and you're able to deal with them much clearer you're able to understand them and you know react how you need to react to them but then move on much quicker and adapt and you know get back to enjoying life again well put part of the process for you getting out I mean, you mentioned a few things there. You got a secret physio, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. So when, um, when I was moved into a kind of a separate room, there's an older guy in the room opposite me and um, his wife came out one day and said some, um, came over to my mum and said, oh, um, James, friend of theirs is visiting, visiting him. And would Henry like to meet him? And I kind of was, in my headspace at the time, I was like, I, my focus was just, you know, me to be honest <laughs> i didn't i didn't wasn't thinking about anything else but me i was so i said no i've you know i don't want to think about that stuff i want to focus on this for now so when he came in because i knew it was a similar level of injury to me he was a, he's a kind of one vertebrae lower which lets you know a bit of more kind of upper bicep get involved so he can move his arms bits but said, when he came in he was pushing himself wheeling himself in his chair i saw him and i was shocked because you know that had never option never been kind of put to me before and then i as he was leaving i said to mum please like follow him can you ask him how he's doing it 
And then mum just kind of disappeared for like two, three hours. And I was like, what the, what's going on? And then came back, it turns out they'd, you know, they went down to the cafe, got lunch. And he told mum about his video called Ruth. And... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom called her that day spoke to her and when we're allowed to you know to kind of wean you out of hospital when you kind of get in there and the moment I moved to rehab orders I was allowed a day one weekend at home and that day we got Ruth round and in hospital in physio there's a lot of time is they keep telling you what you can't do you can't do this you can't do that you won't be able to do this you won't be able to do that and it's a bit like okay cheers thanks that's that's really gonna help um and Ruth was all about kind of what you can do. And there's never, again, never any false hope. She never gave false hope to anyone. But it's just a very, just like, okay, she asked me what to be able to do. I said, I don't want to be able to physically push myself from my chair. And I said that to the people at the hospital, and they're like, we can't do that. That won't happen. And Ruth said, okay, we'll work towards it. She never said you'd be able to do it. She never said, I'm going to make you do it. She said, okay, we'll work towards it. And you know, everyone, my whole family were in the room at the time, and everyone just kind of turned around. I was kind of in shock because we hadn't had that kind of, direct kind of positive affirmation and anything that we had experienced in hospital at the time so each time i came home we got Ruth around and we were doing exercises and trying stuff and her whole philosophy was that, you know if you do a b and c but you can't do d doesn't mean that you can't do e and f and everything that follows so we just try stuff again you, i'm not saying you'll be able to do it but we're going to try it with you i was like okay great you know that's what i want i want to try stuff i want to i've always loved exercises same thing i want to try Try something new, try something different. And just because I can't do D now doesn't mean I won't be able to do it later. So we'll come back to it another time. And, you know, all these things, all these kind of just different ways of trying things. And, and you know, just why not? Why don't we just try it out? And then when I, <laughs> I was kind of taking suggestions back to the hospital when I when I go back in the week and they're kind of getting a bit, you know, a bit suspicious as to where I was getting all this info from about, you know, different wheelchairs and, all these other bits of equipment and eventually they found out that I was seeing Ruth and head physio at the hospital at the time wrote a pretty kind of damning letter to Ruth to kind of say, you know, don't touch on my patients, whatever, and all this. And Ruth kind of told us about the letter and she was like, I just threw it in the bin straight away. <laughs> Not good. And yeah, she was she was fantastic. She kind of just she didn't kind of wasn't too softy feely person at all, but she was just direct. And that's what we really needed at the time. So I was just direct and you know, told us how it was. And you know, we're going to do this. And if my brothers were kind of moving me and they were kind of being really gentle with me, she was like, don't, you don't need to be that gentle. He's your brother. His body's still like tough and holding together. You know, you can be a bit more rough with him. You can do stuff with him. You know, you can still kind of be, do these things together. And yeah. And, you know, like I said earlier, they really made, made the most of that. So, um, <laughs> you got out of hospital out after six months so you originally you were told 18 months you started working on the little big things and you got out in six months right yeah i mean that was i enjoyed that you know i wanted to prove them wrong because they told me i couldn't do mm. these things and i was like well i'm gonna prove it um prove that i can do it and yeah and but it was about focusing on the right things it was about taking it step by step it wasn't because i never allowed myself to get down or upset because I wasn't thinking because I wasn't thinking about the end goal and it was actually the same the same attitude I took in at the start of lock, first lockdown of the pandemic 
I decided early on to not think about the end because you don't know when it's going to be. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't. So, because, and you know, when you have those, especially long-term goals, targets, and things change suddenly and they get moved, that can be hugely overwhelming. That can take, takes a lot to kind of accept that and move through it. But if you've reduced it down to, you know, day by day or two, three days at a time, it's more manageable to deal with it. You can accept it. You can adapt. You can do what you need to do to change. I think that was what I was doing. My mindset wasn't about leaving. It was about each day, each moment. And I was able to kind of give those moments all my focus, all my time and able to remain positive and which yeah was a huge help you've never become famous for not just the books that you've written not just for your positive outlook on life not just because of your injury but because of your artwork talk me through the process of how that started so I started that in jan 2015 um i had a sore on my back so consequence spinal cord injuries you know, lack of blood flow and you know, kind of being in one position for a while, it can happen whether there's kind of all these things impact it. Um, so I got one, I managed to go years without getting one and then I had to sit in bed for ages. And, you know, first week I'm lying on one side, lying on the other side of my body to kind of keep all the pressure off my back. Then I was able to sit up in bed, you know, put some cushions by my back to keep the pressure off it. And then I was able to come my iPad at those moments and I control an iPad the same way I paint with a mouth stick and stylus taped on the end and I touch the screen of, a, of of the iPad. And I was just getting bored in bed. I'd been in bed for three weeks by that point and I just found this really basic drawing app, like incredibly basic. So I decided to just, you know, play around with it, try a couple of things. And yeah, it just seemed to, you know, kind of distract me in a way a bit, I guess. And it was early on, so I was having to be really careful with the lines and you know, things took hours. It kind of suddenly, like, three hours gone in my day. And then I posted them on social media and then read this response really good and, you know, that kind of encouraged me to keep going with it. When I was able to get out of bed, I started drawing um, just with pencils. And then a few months after that, I actually started painting. And, yeah, I mean, it's been, what, come January, eight years since I started it. And it's, yeah, it's been a pretty mad time with it, to be honest. So you've got something that you bite on. Yeah, so some a mastic with a... So I've got a V on one end with rubber, kind of rubber coverings that you just bite onto. And there's a little clamp on the end, which you slide the brush into. And then um, I've got the, on my easel, I've got a tray that I have my palette and my water on and um, kind of cushions on my lap and a cloth across my arms so I can dry in my brush after I'm done. Kind of between changing paints and then that's it. Kind of right, it's incredible. How, you, your first exhibition... Right, you you were a bit worried that no one was going to turn up, weren't you? Yeah, the first time I opened, first public one I did, I was bricking myself all week, just thinking, how am I? Like, yeah, is anyone going to be there? I'm just going to be sitting there like a loser, just kind of staring at my stuff, going, why does no one like me? <laughs> but thankfully they did. And yeah, yeah, that was a whole, that was a mad, that was a mad day, to be honest. Again, it was something that I didn't, yeah, I didn't expect. And it, yeah, it was huge, overwhelming. And I went there from, it was know, half 10 till six in the evening. And I'd arrive at midday and I'd just sit there and I'd just, until the end, just talking to people, meet like those that had come and, you know, you're getting some pretty deep moments with people just kind of sharing their stories with me. And, you know, I think that's the thing I'm, I enjoy most out of everything is, the people feel they're, they're able to kind of share their lives and st- stories with me. And it feels like they've not shared it with anyone else before. I think that's because in everything I've, everything I do, everything I've written, everything I've done has been, I've always tried and been open as I kind of mm. possibly can. I've never, don't think I've ever tried to kind of sugarcoat anything or, or kind of hide how I was feeling in certain moments. And I think that's the thing people respond to most is that, openness that they feel that you know actually they can talk and share and yeah the exhibition is yeah it always seems to be people that are willing to even when there's other people standing around other people want to talk to me they're willing to just say and which is yeah which is kind of feel very very privileged to be in that position 
this is sort of a tough question, but it's in your book, so I don't feel too bad <laughs> asking it. Well, you're, you're living what a lot of people would call their worst nightmare. Tetraplegic, unable to use your, your hands and your legs. You don't see it that way, do you? No, because, I, I, you know, I'd say it's, it's my life. This is, you know, everyone lives their lives differently. No one does the same thing as each other in most aspects of life. But, you know, that makes my situation no different to, to anyone else's. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, you know, that I still can do. I think whenever people see someone in, you know, a wheelchair or with, you know, physical impairment or whatever, they automatically think, you know, they either feel sorry for them or, you know, think, oh, that's a, you know, shit life to be in or, or whatever. They always think about the negative side of, you know, those people's lives. It, like, there's still, but there's still so much open. There's still so much stuff that we can do that I can, I'm still able to do that me dwelling on or thinking about everything I can't do would be completely pointless and, you know, impact my life in a negative way. It's, you know, why would I want to think like that? Why would I want to do that? It's, and then, you know, again, it's telling people that. It's one of those things that, you know, I share on social media. It's about, you know, sharing things that I still can do and, you know, how I think about my situation or whatever. is, you know, my wheelchair is my, you know, my freedom, my liberation. It allows me to get out. It allows me to see my friends. It allows me to enjoy life and, you know, be out with people and, you know, do things. I'm not stuck doing nothing. I can still do everything just in a different way to others. I'm so glad that I asked that question because <laughs> I knew that the answer was going to be great. <laughs> Gratitude is something that I talk about a lot on this podcast and you're one of these people that are just full of it. Like what, how would you define the true meaning of gratitude for me it's about the things that make me happy about being grateful for the things that put a smile on my face whether it's friends or family or you know that i'm able to paint that i'm able to to do certain things still i remember um another podcast i spoke to is a uh, michael gervais who's a um sports psychologist and when i was talking to him about it he said he was saying the same thing. He said, most people, when they think about gratitude, they think of it as a checklist of stuff they need to go through. Mm. And they go, okay, well, I'm grateful for this, this, and this. But he said, it's completely and totally pointless unless those things you're thinking of make you happy or bring you joy. Because otherwise, like, why? Why are you doing it? It's, you know, it's whether, you know, it could change every day things you're grateful for, you know, whatever. But, you know, it's, but it's for the smallest things as well. For You know, when I was, I went five weeks in hospital five weeks in three weeks in Portugal two weeks in intensive care here of not of being in windowless rooms I didn't even see sunlight daylight for five weeks suddenly when I did again I just like I know I'd never I'd never experienced daylight for the first time first time I was able to drink some water suck on a was just sucking a small sponge of a dip of water when I wasn't allowed to eat or drink for for over a month and that was like, again like I never tasted water Suddenly, these things were making me happy. These things, I was realizing actually, these things are joyful. These things are great. And the most mood enhancing thing we can do in life is to be grateful. Grateful for the little things that surround us each and every day. You know, the sun, food to eat, the love of those close to us. It's, and if people just recognize that and understand that, then great and implement it in your own lives. But, you know, everything I've spoken about, everything, you know, little big things, gratitude, all these things kind of take time a lot of time a lot of determination a lot of digging deep to kind of practice over and over and over every day every day every day you know i'd say it took me a full 13 months before i'd fully accepted what happened to me until i went back to school and you know i went through a lot of those moments of gratitude and looking at what i can always focus on what i can do the little big things and going through those every day in hospital when I came out of hospital, focusing on those things. You know, that was 13 months of, they involved a lot of trauma, a lot of emotional turmoil, a lot of kind of physical stuff that, you know, most people never go through, but that allowed me to practice and do all these things. And 13 months of hard work and determination for, 
you know, future lifetime of joy and happiness is worth it. You talk about how people look at you differently or how people look at people with disabilities differently. How do you deal with people treating you differently? I mean, you do kind of encounter people. People, you know, might be a bit more tentative or, you know, really like unsure what to do. It's I can feel that because, like, yeah. it's like I was quite nervous coming here because I was like, my initial thing is you do. I don't want to have an Alan Partridge moment here, but like, my initial thing is, you know, you when you meet someone, you go up, you shake their hand, yeah. um, and after reading your book, I was. I, I was very conscious of the fact that it was going to be okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to shake my hand. But, like, it doesn't... And it's the same with most disabled people. People that, you know, can't shake hands. They don't They don't mind. They don't They don't care. Mm. And I think that's, you know, people are... Because it's, it's just a natural thing to do when you greet someone, isn't it? It's, you know, lots of people do it when you meet someone for the first time or, or whatever and... But most people disabled people don't care. It's like, oh, they're kind of, oh, no worries, or, you know, it's fine. And or like, I can't do that. Or, you know, if it's happened to me, some people, they've, I've said I can't, they've just frozen, like, on the spot, and they just feel like... What did you do? Uh, happened once Kiss to, me. <laughs> <laughs> come in. Um, happened once to an England cricketer, I won't name names. Um, my brothers were me at the time. Is that an event? And it's at the time when people, like, come and shake my hands, my brothers would be, like, jokingly go oh my god like what are you doing and it happened to this one cricketer and he came and shake my hand and my brothers saw it and they're like oh my god what are you doing you can't shake hands and he just like stopped and just like walked backwards slowly like his hand still out like completely frozen and then we just saw him like turn around and just like put his head in his hands and like shake his head and we're like oh wow we'll stop doing that from now on <laughs> did you did you tell the guy that you guys are joking or no, we didn't see him again for the rest of the night. Oh. Yeah. What should people do? What would you... I don't mind. Do? I don't... If, you know, if some people come in, some people hug. Lots of people hug, actually. Lots of people, like, hand on the shoulder. Whatever you do, don't pat someone's head. <laughs> Sorry about the interruption. Coming up next week, we meet former Royal Marine and Head of Security for the Iraqi government, Denny Denham. There was a lot of a lot of corruption on there, you know. There was nine people, nine officers, major to lieutenant colonel, maybe a full colonel as well, who were all convicted for federal crimes of embezzlement from that location. And they were military from Iraq or from- American, American military. Really? Yeah, it was a big scandal. Big scandal that um, I won't mention their names because uh, what were they doing? That's the sort of way I am. But um, so. I remember one time the this guy, this colonel, had went with the civilian contractor. I remember his name. He was an idiot. Bob Stein, um, who claimed he was Delta Force, and he was basically the money man. He was in charge of the operations of money. So this guy, this colonel and him, went to Baghdad to pick up $56 million in cash. They decided not to take a security with them, so there was just them two cowboys driving to Baghdad filled up their car with $56 million in cash and drove back down to Al-Hilla where they sort of lay it out on the foyer of this hotel we'd taken over so everyone could get a picture taken with $56 million worth of cash. So they were in charge of giving contracts to the Iraqis and giving contracts to, um, there was a company called GBG, a guy called Phil Bloom, another guy who ended up in federal prison. I think he may have got nine years maybe or something like that. Um, there's a few dirty stories about that guy as well. I don't mind mentioning these guys' names because they were they were bad guys, you know. And Phil, Phil Americans Plum. that were doing. Yeah, it was a company called GBG, and they were in charge of building roads, hospitals, schools, water treatment plants. A few that. red flags when someone comes back with fifty six million dollars and puts it out in the foyer of a hotel. Is oh. it? It's like, oh, these guys are. It was. It yeah. was a weird time, though, man. You know, we're talking two thousand and three, so there was hundreds of millions of dollars contracts. So that I was working for a company called Global Risk Strategies, and I think that was a two hundred million dollar contract in cash to Damien Pearl, who owned the company. We're talking US dollars. US dollars, right. That's coming up next week. Now back to Henry Fraser. Society, parts of society make pretty big assumptions on 
the contributions that people with injuries make to society. I know that's something that you talk about in depth, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, everyone's got the notion that, you know, disabled people, because they receive benefits, are just kind of a burden on or a drain on society. And, you know, those negative attitudes impact massively on on the mental health and, you know, of of many, many disabled people. One in five, one in five people in the UK is disabled. One in five. It's 14.1 million people. You know, not all disabilities are visible either and it but most are visible and when you're out and about even if it's one in ten how you know when you're about out and about in everyday life if you look around how many physically disabled people do you see very very few if any in a whole day and that's because people just feel like you know, a lot of disabled people feel like they're not welcome they feel like they're you know they're not going to be treated in the right way if they're out and about and but most of them will be it's just when you read it in the press every day or you know it's gonna be a clamp down on disabled people it's going to be we're going to hard harsher stricter tests that kind of rip the most basic dignity and rights away from a huge number of disabled people is it's heartbreaking and i hate to say it and my philosophy is that if you give people the kind of the most basic rights like i'm very lucky my i get my care looked after and funded for um, because of my level of injury and the kind of the physical impacts that takes my body and it needs a lot of 24-hour living care for that. And But having that care in place, having those things in place allows me to paint, to you know go out and give my talks. It allows me to earn money and pay my taxes and contribute to society, not both just economically, but you know be out there and sharing my story and sharing you know, what disabled people can do and and all these things, it makes me feel more welcome in this world and, and stuff. And it's without that stuff in place, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be contributing. I'd be hiding away in my house all, all day. I'd be, you know, I just wouldn't be a very well person. It's, you know, it's just kind of basic common sense and basic, you know, human, the most basic form of compassion you can show to someone. And, you know, what, without those things, could be really horrible places to be in. You know, there are people in this country disabled people have to decide whether in the morning they have a shower or a cup of tea made for them because they have such limited time with with a care worker. And it's, you know, no human being should have to be in that position. You know, they have a cup of tea and then have to stay in bed all day and then to get dirty and all these things. And that will then impact their skin and their health and they'll have to go into hospital. Then take up a lot of time in hospital from you know other people that would need it more had the you know the right care to been put in place for you know there's all these other long-term impacts but you know it's an easy target for some people just to go after and and it's wrong and it needs to change and hopefully hopefully one day soon it will what do you think needs to be done to shift how disabled people are treated well i think we need to see more disabled people on tv for one and in the media and stuff that's such a good shout. There's so much chat about diversity, yeah, and, and that's good. But yeah, you don't see disabled people included in that chat. No, and it's really not. And when it is, I think it's well one of the largest minorities, you know, fourteen point one million people. Why aren't we being seen? Why aren't one of five of us being on TV and having our, you know, just letting people understand our lives? You know, oh look, you know, we are out there contributing. It's young disabled kids are able to see these people and think about their future and their lives and all these all these things all these positive things that could and should be happening but just giving young kids uh, something to aspire to yeah. seeing it on tv you know that old adage you can't be what you can't see mm. and it's like it's so true and yeah you know we need to see it it needs to be it needs to happen more and hopefully it will but you know is channel four very good for it are they their coverage of the Paralympics was, well, pretty much mostly disabled people. And a couple of the presenters weren't, but that's great. It's fantastic. Like, why isn't this happening? But, you know, people always also think it's disabled people can only present shows about disability or all yeah, the Paralympics exactly. or stuff like that. So. Exactly. No, we've got other skills, just like everyone else. We can do, you know, we have other interests than just our disability. Like, like racing cars. Change. I saw you racing <laughs> a car. Tell me about that. How did that work? 
Yeah, that was um I just got an email the blue one day from an email to say, Have you would you like to come down to Goodwood to drive this car? And I had some of the details and the links to the stuff and I read through it and I was like, Oh my god, this is pretty cool. And then immediately I was like, Yes, I'm in. And then so we went down to the Goodwood racetrack um the weekend, it was just before the Festival of Speed was happening. And arrived there and I know I knew how the, they had explained how the tech works, but I got down there and saw the first of all saw the car and I was just like, Oh yes. I mean I've always loved cars. I'd like you know, supercars, hypercars, they're just beautiful. Great business design and the tech and everything is just incredible. And we got down there, there's someone already driving the car and I was just the guy who was originally designed for this tech and he was driving the car around and the noise and I was just like, Oh my god, it's gonna be amazing. And they got me in the car, hoisted me in kind of put the helmet on me made sure like obviously i strapped in right it's a 700 horsepower car not 16 like 2.8 seconds this is it's a bit of a beast i'm not strapped in right i am flying and then yeah put the helmet on through the side of the helmet kind of under the foam padding on the inside through the front and into my mouth there was a straw that it was basically blow to go suck to stop to accelerate and brake on the car on the helmet there were three sensors on the dashboard, there was three in front of me. So wherever I turned my head, that turned the wheels. And then, yeah, that was it. Full control of this car. Fire. Obviously, they the lead engineer in the front, in the driver's seat, just in case. But they kind of took all the equipment away, kind of all the bits they'd used to get me in the car. And the driver, um, engineer turned to me and said, all right, off you go. And I was a bit like, what? You're not going to like take me around? He's like, no. It's your, it's your day. So I kind of went off. I just went, and I went like 20 miles an hour off the line. I was like, oh god! But then, literally, lap after lap, you kind of you get more confident in the tech. You kind of get used to all the different things, and then suddenly you're just like flying around. This, and I mean, you got to trust a car like that. It's not, it's not sliding anywhere. So you can like give it full beams into corners, and yeah, it was just amazing. Like absolutely incredible to have full control of what it was when I got out of the car. And they said, that car, including all the tech they've used to put in it, it's like a 700 grand car. And I was like, I'm very happy you told me that after I've driven it. <laughs> Otherwise, I would not have been driving as I did. <laughs> Shit, that's awesome. Like, with that technology, could you use it for other things, obviously, than driving a car? Like, you could have it on a wheelchair, for example, and be able to, like, cruise yeah. around. So the guy it's designed for originally, he actually drives in. He's also a tetraplegic. But he actually has got a driver's license in Nevada using that tech. But instead of helmets, it's a pair of glasses. So you can drive. And then the indicators are just voice controlled. So you know, the tech's there, but they, they kind of their applications they use it for would be things like, you know, you could do automated tractors. So you could like remotely drive other, just any form of equipment, you know, just opens up way more kind of working capabilities for disabled people and things. These are real world applications and, you know, they're still playing with it. They're still having fun with it. That was the first time that that car's been bought, taken out of America. Was that day? That's exciting. What about like um, stem cell research and stuff? Is there any kind of? Uh, do you talk about that much? Do you look into that much? Yeah, there was a period where I was because I was really interested in it. But then you know my life got busy with other stuff, and I wasn't really you know. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. Some of the stuff that's coming out. I'm I'm not sure about the whole. You know, there's this whole electrodes thing. You like clip something on the spinal cord and i don't know if that's you know a proper long-term solution the tech's amazing and for right now yeah it's it's great stem cells are definitely the way forward um to actually properly heal spinal cord fully without always having some kind of external contraption there are lots of people that kind of hang their hopes on it a lot on a cure in their lifetime and you know i think in my lifetime there probably will be there more than likely will be. But I'm not hanging kind of any of my like future on it. I'm not gonna let it kind of distract me from things I'm doing now or what I want to do. And if it happens then great. The chance of me benefits from it probably be very, very slim. But you know, knowing it's there and thinking about it and these people are there's people out there working on it and that yeah, it's just cool. I mean, I love kind of that side of science and tech and stuff. It's it's very cool stuff to be happening. So where can people get hold of your uh, paintings and where can people book you for talks? 
everything is best to go through my website, which is henryfraserart.com. Um, and then, yeah, there's everything on there. <laughs> I've had a look at it. Everything is on there. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like, it, you know, when it comes to gratitude and, and all that kind of thing that we just talked about, you put it across so eloquently and people can take so much out of what you've been talking about how you've brought it across. So, mate, I'm grateful for you. Oh, cheers, man. No, thanks for having me on. Thanks for wanting to talk to me. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to get on board as a sponsor for this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you have any suggestion for guests, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter and I'll put all the links in the synopsis to this episode along with the link to Henry Fraser's website and his Twitter and Instagram, which you're very, very busy on. Yeah, self-promotion. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.